This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. There's a couple that go to the Super Bowl every year, and that's kind of a, a marriage retreat for them. They get out of town and buy tickets and they noticed that down in front of them, there was a man, and he was sitting, and his stuff was in the seat next to them. And if you know anything about Super Bowl seats, they're rather valuable, right? Because uh, I think towards the end of the, the spectrum of approaching the Super Bowl, those seats were going for twelve, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 at the least. And uh, they noticed that this man had a seat, and so as halftime was approaching, they made their way down to see the man he was a little older, and they asked him about the seat, and he said, well, my wife and I, too, have went to the Super Bowl every year. It's kind of a thing that we've done, and my wife passed away not too long ago, and they were, well, that's, you know, just taken, you know, with that story that here's this man with this seat, and and he has obviously saved it, and they kind of felt sorry for him because he was all by himself and said, well, well, didn't you just have somebody else that loved you and cared about you? Was there somebody else that was in your family, perhaps maybe a, a cousin, a, a niece, a nephew, a brother or sister, and he that could have come to the game? I mean, that's an expensive seat to have held out. And he said, no, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> what? What? I mean, that's, that's messed up, isn't it? That's messed up. That guy has got his priorities all mixed up. I'm telling you. I mean, that's, and, and, and as we, we get into this today, what we're going to find out, this is an important thing that I want to kind of sink into our consciousness as we begin to have this conversation today is that priorities are important. Priorities are important. Let's read in the very opening chapter of the story, as God paints it for us in Genesis 1, right after the account of the creative man, as you read through Genesis 1, you'll actually see what appears to be a small poem. And it is. It's uh, using a, a form of poetry from, from that language. And, and we're going to read this and I want you to pay close attention to Genesis 1.27. Look at it as we put it on the screen. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, God, from the very beginning of this story, wants to let us know that he created us to be men and women. And at the heart of masculinity and femininity is simply a different list of priorities. We titled this series Sexy because I remember about two years ago sitting in an ultrasound room and the ultrasound technician going through as my wife was pregnant, taking pictures, you know how they do it. Yeah, if y'all been in there, that's the most nerve-wracking experience in the whole wide world. Because you're like, what are y'all doing? Is something wrong? I don't, you know, and so you freaked out anyway. And about 
30 minutes into it, she looks at you and says what? Do you want to know the sex of the baby? The term sex refers to male or female. And the truth is, is that the adjective sexy just means that someone is living in their maleness or their femaleness. In its ultimate, the real word meaning. And this conversation, when I was planning it, is very important. As a matter of fact, when I do premarital counseling, this is how I start out premarital counseling with a young couple. It's engaging these conversations. And I thought, it is so important that we make this foundational, but I know that not everybody's talking about it. But let me just describe my Wednesday. Wednesday morning, I had a, a time, I have a little study time, and I, I read some, some magazines, really, just to keep up with the times, like some of y'all. I pulled out Time Magazine this week. Time Magazine has an article on the new decision to allow women to be in combat. That article was a discussion about masculinity and femininity. I flipped over and went to go get my Entertainment Weekly, right? Because that's going to be, that's what, you got to know what's going on that week on the TV shows, right? The cover of it, girls, how women have changed the spectrum of TV. And that's Tuesday, right? It's in the morning. Now, I go to a place of business, and on a place of business, they are displaying the cover of a Newsweek from three years ago that shows research on gender roles. I go home, and my wife and I are watching just a TV show that we like. All right, it's Friday Night Lights. Don't make fun of me. All right, I cry just about every episode. It's already off. It's on Netflix. That's how we're watching it. All right. But in the middle of this episode, the husband and the wife get in an argument about who should stay home and take care of the baby. You see, the reason that it's important to have this kind of conversation at church is because the world is already having it. And we got to know what God's word says. Because the way that we approach masculinity and femininity affects how we relate to each other. The first thing that I want you to know, and this is in your notes, is that God created men and women to be different. When we look at Genesis 127, it says that male and female, he created them. Male and female. He created them. It does not leave humanity in a, a broad subject. God, even from the very beginning, begins to get specific and to say, hey, you know what? I created you to be a man. I created you to be a woman. There's a lot of differences between men and women. I could put pictures up that show the anatomical differences, but I don't think we need to talk about that today. There's a lot of research that's been done about this, actually. Um, Dr. Oz, you know, I mean, America's like new obsession, recently posted an article 
where he went through the five senses and relayed how different men and women are in the five senses. I mean, smell, apparently according to research, women can smell exponentially better than men. Right? Hearing, across the board, across the board, women hear better than men. And we all know women can see better than men because they got eyes in the back of their head, right? Really, actually, women, out of all the five senses, the one that actually men excel in is sight. But women have this gift of perceptional vision out of their peripheral. Like women can see things out of the side of their head. Like, what in the world? Like, I knew my mom could do that. Where did that come from? Sociologists have been researching this for a long time, too. Is if you look into um, behavioral patterns, you start to see great disparities between the differences in men and women. As a matter of fact, um, broad research in the United States and in Europe shows that if you take a sample of burglaries, only one out of every 10 burglary is performed by a woman. You get down to simple assault, it's one out of three. The truth is, is that men and women are dramatically different. And God made us to be different. He made us to be different people. That's what the Bible tells us. So let me give you something that's very, very important for us to kind of absorb as we begin this conversation. That men and women are not equal in identity. They are not equal in identity, but equal in importance. Complementing each other with different priorities. You see, I don't want my wife to be equal to me. I don't want her to be just like me. There are things I love about my wife because she is nothing like me. And I don't think that we live in a world that understands and values that. The odd thing is that we live in a world that has preached tolerance and acceptance of differences until it gets down to differences that exist in gender roles. As a teacher, women in the classroom can hug a kid and won't nobody say anything about it. But as a 35-year-old man, if I walk into a classroom as a teacher and hug a young girl, it just don't look good, does it? You see, the thing is, is that God created us to be different. And that's great because those differences complement each other. God designed them to work. And initially in the story, God looks at Adam and says, it's just not good. You're alone. I've given you a job to do. It's not good that you're alone. God pronounces literally over a scenario that he created that it's not good. Why? 
Did you think that God wouldn't know that that would be bad? That just kind of surprised him. Adam's alone. What's up with that? I don't know how that happened. No. From the very beginning, God is given us the understanding that men and women were created to complement each other. And so today, we're going to kind of jump into that. You see, a lot of people like to look back to that scenario, to, to the garden in Genesis 3, when Adam has blown it, there's sin that has been committed. And they like to go, well, that's when it all started. That's when God said, well, Adam, now you have to work, and Eve, you're going to bear the children, and it's going to be painful. And the, the Hebrews call that passage the, the curses. It's where God pronounces a curse over them. Let me just submit this thought to you that gender roles were not created at the fall. They were corrupted at the fall. God says, everything that you were designed to do in complement now will become more difficult. And so today, for the next little bit, we're going to dive into the question of what it means to be a man. And men, I can tell you in this room, there has not been one message that I've prepared in a very long time, perhaps ever, that has been more convicting than this message has been to me. To the point that after studying on Monday, I pulled my wife aside Monday evening and said, I need to repent because I have blown it and I need you to know that I know that I've blown it because you probably already know that I've blown it, but I need you to know it. There's not one of us that's going to walk out of here feeling like, oh, yeah, pat on the back. I feel great about all that. But God's truth is there to convict and challenge and change us, right? And we want to be the kind of church that says, God, I don't care what you want. Just tell me because I want to be that kind of person. And we all in this room have different ideas about what it means to be a man. Some of you might have this idea about what it means to be a man. A lumberjack kind of guy, right? The guy that works outside, right? Goes hunting. Kills his own food, right? That kind of guy. He camps. He doesn't even own a bed. He camps all the time, just camping, right? Sleeping on the ground, not even not in a tent, just on, on a patch of like straw or something. That's a man. Some of y'all might think this. This is for the ladies. I'm going to mess with you ladies a little bit too because this right here, one of the most dangerous and deceptive things in all the world. All right? Prince Charming. That's a real man. That's a real, that's a real man, right? Prince Charming comes in and saves you. Always worried about you bringing you flowers and you know, he's romantic, but he's tough, right? And he's never, he's never offensive, right? That same anger that needs to be in place when he's going to defend you never gets misplaced in your relationship. Never, that, there's never any kind of crossover there. Prince Charming, right? Some of us think that, um, I had to put this one in here, this one right here. Anybody know who that is? That's Daryl. Anybody know Daryl? 
Raise your hand if you know Daryl. It's like some of us are really excited about this. Daryl's a character from The Walking Dead a TV show on AMC. Um, I'm, it's about zombies, and I feel really embarrassed when I say that it's about zombies and I watch it. Um, but anyway, Daryl is this character. He's just so protective of the females. He's the first one to volunteer when there's a mission to go on. He's that guy who's always going to stick his neck out. Some of us think of this guy. That's a real man. Someone who's honorable. Someone who's dignified. Someone who is honest and has good character. Someone who's a good leader and leaves behind a legacy. And some of us think of this guy right here. Ric Flair. Somebody give me a woo. Oh, there. I know we're in North Carolina. You can get that around here. All right. Looks good. Gets the ladies. Right? Y'all remember that stuff, right? That's just crazy. Rick Flair is still doing that. He does not look like that anymore. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. We, we have all kind of images about what it means to be a man. All, all, all kinds of. And can I just tell you, most of them are dead wrong. Today, I want to look at a passage of scripture. If you're a man, this is something I would consider getting tattooed somewhere on your body. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of little gem of scripture that's hidden at the back of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I'm, I'm indebted to the, the great Wayne Grudem for bringing this to my attention. Um, this passage is to me the passage of when I think about God encouraging me to be a man. This is, this is it. Out of 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just read along with me. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. And do everything in love. You see, at the heart of biblical masculinity is not a lumberjack or a professional wrestler. At the heart of biblical masculinity are three traits that I want to pull out and give to you today. And if you're like me, as we walk through these, these will be Convicting and challenging. Ladies, if you're in here, if you're a young lady, let me just go ahead and tell you, you look for these in the heart of a man that you would give your heart to. Don't settle for anything less than this. Men, I can go ahead and tell you that it hurts. <laughs> to walk through this stuff. But let me tell you that life is not a moment. God doesn't gauge us on where we are. He looks to where we're going. And so let's kind of endeavor in our hearts to say, God, whatever you called me to be, that's what I want to be. I don't care. I don't have an agenda in this. You created me. You tell me. 
So I'm going to give you three things that I see here. The first one is that God designed the heart of a man to provide. This week I got off the phone with a pastor friend. He said, man, I just got off the phone with this girl. She's got a great job and she's just killing me because she's got this stupid boyfriend that they've been going out with for three years. I'm like, what? All right, you're the nicest guy I've ever known in my entire life. What are you talking? Like for you to use that language, something's got to be going on. He said, this guy literally lives at her house. Doesn't work. Stays there all day, eats her food, lives off of her. And she has a great job. Don't want to get married to her. Just wants to mooch off of her. I was, he was like, that's the kind of guy I want to go find him and punch him in the face. And I was like, you know what? If you make that decision, you call me because I'll go with you. Because in the heart of a man is the desire to provide. In Genesis 3, verse 17, God looks at Adam and says, Cursed is the ground, but you'll work it. And it's with great labor that you will provide food for your family. You see, the role was already there. The role was already there for him to be the one to provide food for his family. God just said, because of sin, that gets harder now. Wayne Grudem and John Piper wrote one of the eminent works on masculinity and femininity. It's a book called Rediscovering Biblical Masculinity and Femininity. In that, in the passage on this, Wayne Grudem says this, and this is a phenomenal quote. When there is no bread on the table, it is the man that should feel the pressure to go get some. When there is no bread on the table, it is the man that should feel the pressure to go get some. And I love many of you as I know you. I see this in you. I see in your heart the kind of heart that says, I will work a job that puts me out there working 12-hour days, six days a week, if it takes it to provide for my family. And that's the heart of a man. Now, that doesn't mean that in the spectrum of a family in our day and time that a woman doesn't earn money, all right? Last year when we moved to do this, literally, we couldn't have done it if my wife wouldn't have worked. And I think my wife has a valuable contribution in her career to people that she works with and the clients that she serves. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that there's a priority there. And that the heart of a man wants to provide. I love The Walking Dead. I, it's a little gross, okay? I ain't condoning it at all. I'm throwing it out on, there, on you or anything. But the thing, as those characters developed early on, after this cataclysmic event in the world where the world kind of ceases to end, the thing that I, I liked was seeing that the men stepped up and said, we're the ones that will go and find what we need. It's dangerous. One of us might not return. It will be us. We're the ones that will do it. The second 
thing that's at the heart of biblical masculinity that God has designed to put into the heart of a man is the desire to protect. When I first began to study this a few years ago, this is one of those areas that was very convicting to me. Now, when I got married, I had only really shot a gun when I was hunting or recreationally with my father. My wife and I were living in a neighborhood that weren't so good, right? You know what I'm talking about? And um, after we got married, about a month into it, I got the image of some dude breaking into our house and having a gun and me not having one. And I'd never felt that way before in my entire life, ever. Like I had never felt like there's something in here that I need to be protective over, but I did feel that way then. And if y'all just want to know where I land on the whole subject, I went and bought a nine millimeter. And now if you break into my house and try to mess with my wife, I will shoot you in the name of Jesus. All right. (laughs) That is exactly what's going to go down. All right. But there is a desire to be protective. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be on guard. Men, that we're supposed to be strong. But the question in protection is that I think most men feel the desire to protect. But the real question is, what are we protecting from? See, there have been studies where they took two men and a woman and put them in an elevator and let the elevator stop with a guy who appeared to be an assailant that was going to come in. Universally, the men stepped in front of the women. It's it's just built into us that we're supposed to be that way. But if we get it, mixed up what we're doing when we're protecting, we will blow that whole thing up. Because most of the time, we think that we're supposed to be protecting our spouse from something. That we're supposed to be protecting somebody from something. And it's not that way at all. You see, when it gets to that point, everything else becomes dangerous. We become the kind of husbands and leaders and protectors that want to get rid of every other influence. I don't want you to have that friend. I'm I'm worried about, about that. I don't like the way that that guy looked at you. The call of God in our hearts as we protect is to protect for God's will. Not for us. All right? The heart of a father is to protect our children so that they can live in God's will. Not so that they're safe and sound and we're happy. The heart of a husband is to protect his wife so that she can fully live in God's reality for her. 
not to protect her so that she's my prize. Do y'all understand me? Because those two things are very different. Protection, ultimately, is the desire to preserve God's will in somebody else. Now, I have seen young men get in fist fights, get in brawl fights because someone looked wrong at their girlfriend and they are sleeping with that same girl before they got married. You tell me if they're protecting her. That's a, that's a childish boy's perspective of protection. A man understands that I am called to protect her for God's will. And if you're that kind of man who rushes off to try to knock people away and you don't care, it's just a prize. Your children are prizes. Shame on you. Because the protection that God's given you, the authority in their lives to hold, is to protect them, to execute God's will, to live fully in God's will. The last thing that I would point out, this is one of those things that in our culture, This is one of those things that has been distorted, perverted, broken, shattered. When it comes to the heart of what a man is supposed to have. But God designed the heart of a man to lead. That's the third thing. You see, the trouble that we have with the word lead is this. It's that we all have so many different images of what that word means. Some of us hear the word lead and we think of a drill sergeant who is shouting out orders in authority. Some of us think of a boss who has the ability to execute punishment and consequences and to give raises. Some of us think of a coach and all of those models are really horrible when we start to understand the way that God has called a man to lead. I'd like to steal three points from, from John Piper, his thoughts on male leadership. And these are rooted and grounded in understanding the heart of Jesus so the first one that I would point out to you is this, is that when God begins to talk about the heart of a man being designed to lead, it does not demand to be served, but has the strength to serve and to sacrifice. What does the Bible say about Jesus? That he did not come to be served, but to serve. And the Bible over and over again tells husbands to love their wives like Jesus loves the church, right? 
does not demand to be served, but has the strength to serve and sacrifice. The second thing, does not assume supreme authority that belongs to Jesus, but supports and redirects to it. That the heart of a man in leadership does not assume supreme authority because who does that belong to? It belongs to Jesus. So what am I supposed to do as a husband, as a pastor? Right? I'm supposed to advocate for Jesus. That's what leading means. And there are times that we all get that wrong, right? So what's my job then to do is to redirect. Go, hey, you know what? I don't think we're getting this right. Let's go to Jesus. The last thing, that leadership is not based in superiority, but in the burden of a definitive responsibility to Jesus. You see, oftentimes in our culture, when you leverage the word lead, most people begin to assume superiority, better, more important. And that's not at all the way it is. But here is the priority that's at work there. Wives, one day your husband will stand before Jesus and have to give an account of your family. Your husband will. Husbands, you're going to have to stand in front of Jesus and say, this is what I did with my family. Good or bad, broken, whole, whatever, we're going to have to give that account. God holds me responsible for what happens in my family. And that's why When God puts together the family, he gives one person the burden of responsibility. You see, that's a it's a burden, it's not a privilege. I know that there are going to come days and some of you have walked through seasons when you see your kids doing stuff and you know it ain't easy. Right? And sometimes it's just easier not to have a conversation, right? Because if you have a conversation, what happens? It turns into an argument and somebody gets mad and their feelings get hurt. But what happens if I don't? I mean, one day I'm going to literally have to stand before Jesus and go, Jesus, this is my family. Now, in our culture, especially here in the South, where we have some kind of a frame of reference for this, it is not uncommon in the nature of a family to find men who are very, very, very excited about the fact that they think God put them in charge. All right? There are those guys that are, I'm the man. I'm the husband. I'm the one who gets to make the calls. Right? Y'all been around them, right? 
And you know when they come around? Because their wives do not look very happy at all, right? They're like, oh God, here we go again. Let me give you one little bit. This is in your notes. This is, if I can just say, take something and apply it and, and really let it bury deep in your soul about leadership, this is very important, okay? That godly leadership does not want to be in authority. It wants to be under authority. Godly leadership does not want to be in authority. It wants to be under authority. And there are some men who are so excited about being in authority that they have no compliance with being under the authority of Jesus. And all that ends up making you is an abuser. If we could, I would like to look at a passage that informs this a little bit. It comes out of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.23, if you are looking for a passage to study as a, a husband and wife. Ephesians 5 is a great passage of Scripture. It is uh, one of the preeminent little, like, succinct, compact talks in the Scriptures about husbands and wives. But let's look at this. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.23 that the husband is the head of the wife. even as Christ is the head of the church. In that passage of scripture, we see affirmed that God definitely, in the heart of a man, gives the priority to lead. And a lot of times, we read that and we read that language, that the husband is the head of the wife. And I know, because I've dealt with wives a lot, that some wives are like, he ain't going to be the head of me. You know, I don't know. That ain't going to happen. That ain't going down with me, you know? Because we live in a world that has blown this dynamic up. But it doesn't just stop there. The statement that the Apostle Paul makes to the church in Ephesus does not stop at just the husband is the head of the wife. It's not just that statement. He says the husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church. So Jesus is the example, right? Jesus is the example. Now I'm going to pull like scripture kung fu on you here, right? Is that all right? Can we do that? Have a little fun? Why don't you look at this statement that Jesus made in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. You see, if the husband is supposed to be the head of the church like Christ, or the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church, that's how it's supposed to go down. It's not my thoughts. It's not my wants, my needs. It's not about me at all. Because you're not supposed to be at the center of your family or your world. 
If you're a boss, you're not supposed to be at the center of your company. The truth is, is that the father is supposed to be at the center of your family. And that if you want to lead the way that God calls you to lead, then we're going to be the kind of people that lead, the kind of men that lead to protect the will of the Father and to lead people to Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, I can't do anything unless I see the Father do it. That's the only way I can engage this activity is I sit back and I wait until God tells me go. And then I go and do it. I've said this to you as parents before, but I'll say it to the men in this room. When was the last time you said to your family, I feel like God wants us to do this? When you were talking about something that was difficult and it was trying, that you could honestly say, I've prayed about it and I've heard from the Father and this is what we need to do. Because that's the leadership that God's given you. It's not to manifest your opinion. It's not to make yourself the center of your own little world. It's not to have other people serve you. It's so that you can serve others that you love by building up the kingdom of God in them and releasing them to follow Jesus. The truth is that we can never stand as men and do that if we're not right with Jesus. If my relationship with him isn't right, if I'm not following Jesus, I can't look at my wife and say, hey, God told me to do this. I can't do that if I'm not following him. So all around this room, let's take a moment and pray. Dear God, Father God, as we look into the heart of what it means to be a man for many of us in this room today, we may have come face to face with the reality that we weren't, we haven't been the kind of men that God would have us to be. The only reaction to that in our hearts, God, today Would you let it not be fear or condemnation, but in turn, God, turn us towards repentance so that as men and and even women in our room today, God, that today that we could look into your hearts and say, God, I just want to be the kind of man that you've called me to be. Now, with nobody looking around, I just want to talk to the men in the room. And I'm going to be a little bit more bold with you than I normally am. Because I know some of you and I know that there's a lot more in you than you think there is. When you look into the heart of God's call as a man, is there something that today you go, hey, I need to repent for? I have not done that well. 
And maybe today, today for you, you say, hey, I'm not leading. I'm not leading well because I'm, I'm not following Jesus well. I'm not following Jesus and I, I need to get that right. So if that's you, I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk down or do anything weird, but I just want to ask you to raise your hand. If that's you today, would you raise your hand? I see those hands. Now, if you're the man that's in this room that says, I got something to repent for. I have been a poor illustration of what a man should be for my family, to my girlfriend, to my children. And you want to get it right. I'm going to invite you right now to do something that I don't do normally, but I'm going to ask you to stand up. If that's you and you're in this room and you say today, I need to repent because I've been a poor example. Would you stand up right now? If you're in here today and you think, you know what, I've blown it. At the heart of being a man, I'm just, I have not been what I need to be. Would you just stand? Nobody's looking. It's just really between you and God. Is there anybody else? Everybody, eyes closed, head down. Let me pray for those who have responded. God, for those of us that are in here today. God, those of us that recognize that there's an area in that, in that heart map that you've given us that we've fallen short. Would you whisper into our hearts today that we can be that man? Because there's some of us in here that think, I can't do that. And for those of us that are here that feel a little, a little broken over this, God, would you bring some healing? And those who need to repent. God, not just to, to you, but to, but to husbands or to wives and children, would they follow through and do that with grace and dignity? so that we can be fully alive, fully men in your name. We pray, amen, amen.